from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Homa Tavangar, author of the book Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World. Homa has spent her career helping governments develop globally-oriented programs and advising businesses on how to thrive abroad. In Growing Up Global, Homa shares her parenting toolbox to help give our children a vital global perspective. I started the interview by asking Homa where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Iran, and my family moved to the United States when I was just a year old. And we moved to Ohio first, to Cleveland, Ohio. And when I was five, we moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and lived there until I was 16. And at 16, we moved to Orange County, California, and stayed there, and I went to college in L.A. at UCLA. So my big shtick is to promote global experiences and global awareness, and I I did have a lot of that growing up, but my upbringing was, you know, it was kind of Midwestern, all-American USA in many ways. That's actually very useful for my topic because I try to work with families and schools and all kinds of people to gain a global mindset, and the point is from wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, there is access to all kinds of global experiences. And I get that. I didn't have such an exotic upbringing as people sometimes think I may have had. And when did you say you moved to the United States from Iran? Uh, When I was a year old. What were the circumstances that your family moved from Iran? We actually came in the 60s. It was for uh, my father's education. He had a scholarship and opportunity to work on a Ph.D., So he actually is the first Iranian with an organizational development uh, industrial psychology PhD ever. So, you know, I talk about it in my book, in Growing Up Global, that some of my family members were pushed out mainly because they were Baha'is, because of their religious beliefs, especially after the 1979 revolution. But in our case, we were more pulled by opportunity and education in the United States. So, Homa, what is it about being a Baha'i that caused people to leave Iran? After the Iranian revolution in 1979, the members of the Baha'i faith were really targeted, and they continue to be today very intensely. They're the largest religious minority, and the teachings of the Baha'i faith, things like the equality of women and men, education for all, the harmony of science and religion, the independent investigation of the truth, as well as the location of the Baha'i Holy Land in Israel, all make for prime targets of 
the fundamentalist regime. So many Baha'is, including members of my family, were forced out of Iran, and in spite of you know being very loyal to their government and loving their country and their culture, uh, many had to escape and lost all their possessions and really, if they were lucky enough to leave, had to completely start over. And so my own family, my, my parents were fortunate to have left earlier and gotten a, you know, some degree of foothold about it, you know, having left about a dozen years, 12, 13 years before the revolution. So we were often, we were kind of the home base for many people and cousins and various people would stay with us. That was a little interesting, actually, part of my own global education to learn about these issues from early on, middle school, high school, persecution and injustice and what is a refugee and all kinds of things like that. And I'm happy to say that most of the people, most of my family members that did escape, especially right around the revolution, have really been able to pursue education and have done very well, especially the ones that came to the United States. So back to your growing up years, what were your interests growing up? They were actually not that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just was like a really normal American kid. I think I've watched every episode ever made of The Brady Bunch and (laughs) Gilligan's Island. And... (laughs) You know, we weren't like the Von Trapps, you know, doing like amazing things in our home. We were like normal. I had a very kind of a normal, I'd say normal for suburbia upbringing with the caveat that, you know, my mom made more unusual sorts of food. You know, she's a fabulous cook and she cooked Persian food. And because we were Baha'is, I would say the thing that made it unusual, it wasn't as much our cultural life as much as in a way, our social life and the diversity of friends that we had growing up and the kinds of people that were, you know, like I actually wrote a story in the Huffington Post last year around, I think it was around Martin Luther King King's birthday that mentioned, you know, my mother's best friend was African-American and I never thought that was anything unusual until much, much later when I realized that you know, it was sort of like my mother said, they were sort of thrown together because they were the two people that were very different from everybody else. And having one amazing advantage of growing up with a Baha'i perspective is that the idea that divisions based on race or ethnicity, culture, are really kind of non-issues and it's really more something we celebrate and so my parents always had very, a very diverse range of friends. And I think that was probably one of the most impactful kind of quiet forces in my life. You know, they didn't hit me over the head with it as if it were some lesson that I had to, you know, gain, but it was just a way of life. That's very much a message that I try to share in Growing Up Global is that through the lens of friendship and the example of parents in opening your home, opening your dinner table to friends from very different backgrounds, and today there are the diversity in this country in all kinds of neighborhoods is much greater than it was 
40 years ago, 30 years ago. I think that is it's a tremendous opportunity. And, and just in my own life, I see that that small example and small, I, I don't want to call it an effort, but that fact of the diversity of friends that my parents had made a, a really true great impact in our lives. And it really opened many doors, who we would be friends with, who we would associate with, the kind of barriers that were non-barriers, they were normal to us. And I really think that's a very important part of gaining a global perspective, which is, you know, the goal of my book. So in a lot of ways, my growing up was very normal. And, you know, I kind of did just nothing very unusual. And that's another part of the the message that I, I try to convey with growing up global. So raising a global citizen doesn't have to be, it's really not rocket science. It really takes advantage of whatever your interests are, whatever your opportunities are that you have available, whatever you can afford, this is within reach. It doesn't have to be such a difficult process to raise a global citizen or to have a family that values a global perspective and a global experience. What did you do after high school? I went to UCLA, undergrad, living in Southern California. While I was there, actually, one really pivotal experience I had there, once I got there, I realized that being in a really large university was not the ideal thing for me. Mid-1980s was still pretty early to do a year of study abroad, especially unusual to go to South America, and I went to Peru. So I spent my junior year during my undergraduate at UCLA studying in Peru, and it combined it with um, what Baha'is call a youth year of service. So I was able to attend university, and I attended the Catholic University of Peru, uh, which is a wonderful university, and then I was very involved in education projects all over in Lima and in the Amazon region and various parts of the country. And it was such a pivotal year, such a wonderful year. My Spanish became fluent. Again, I made so many friends. It left such, a, such an impact on me. And that also caused me to sort of change the course of what I thought I was going to do as a career, and I decided to focus more in the area of international development. So I graduated from UCLA in 1988, and then I went, because of the year off that I had in Peru, I went right to grad school, and that's what brought me to the East Coast. I went to the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton, and studied international development, international trade. While I was there, I took another year off, and I worked in Nairobi, Kenya, for the U.S. government's USAID, in the Agency for International Development. That was another really wonderful year, and I never imagined myself going to Peru. I never imagined myself going to Kenya the door opened that there was one job possibility, and it happened to be in Kenya. So I went for it, and I was really lucky that I could do it at the time. So 
those were really, really formative and pivotal experiences for me. And while I was in Kenya, one of the main things I did was it was the very early days of micro-lending and micro-credit, and I worked on programs that promoted microfinance and micro-lending, and we studied this new project in Bangladesh, which is now very well-known, and Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank. You know, he's won a Nobel Peace Prize. We were looking at that example to spin it off and start that in Kenya. You know, all these experiences really... That was where I got my more of my global experience was once I was in college and afterwards in grad school and then in, as a professional, more so than my growing up. But there were foundational things that happened growing up that made me, I think, adaptable and flexible and open, really open to taking advantage of those opportunities. And so you said you went to Kenya during grad school? I did. I took a year off during mm. grad school, so I was working. I wasn't actually mm. taking classes. So what did you do after graduating? I worked for a short time with the World Bank and with some consulting companies in doing international development and especially working on women's development and really looking with a kind of a special lens at the issues where economic adjustment and economic development was particularly impacting women and how certain policies might be hurting women in various countries. So I spent some time doing that. And in the meantime, I also got married. And soon after, my husband and I, we had an opportunity for his work to move to Philadelphia. And so once we moved to Philadelphia, it was tough because that's not where international development jobs really can be found. So I adapted some of the work I was doing was also in international business development abroad. So, for example, in Kenya, working on export handicrafts that were high-quality handicrafts made there or the export of agricultural products like French beans and flowers and various kind of cash crops that they had in Kenya. And so when I moved to Philadelphia, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I figured that I would adapt to that work in export development to American companies. So that sort of changed the course of my career, and I've spent about the last 20 years working with companies, American a lot of them are like mom and pop or been in the family for generations, manufacturers or even technology companies that need to compete in the global marketplace. That process is what really caused me to think about this intersection of what's happening to globalization and the fact that all these executives from these companies that I worked with were forced to think globally for the first time, and they were really unprepared. And at the same time, I'm a mother now. I have three kids. So I was, you know, thinking about this intersection of what I was seeing professionally in globalization and, as a mother, what we were doing to prepare our children. Right after 9-11, I really started thinking about this relationship with the world and preparing our children 
you know, I just spent a lot of time thinking about this and looking for resources that would address this issue of what are we doing to prepare our children for such a changing world. And that's the genesis of how I transitioned from economic development and trade development to now writing and education. What was your first project when you sort of transitioned from this business consulting work to thinking about the education of children and preparing them for a global world, global network? Well, my first project was diving into writing this book, actually. I went about it initially as just a little side interest that I had, and this was in 2002. It was really a year after 9-11 that I really began to think about it. I was in Beijing, China, on business. Just a number of things really struck me, and particularly as they were entering an economic boom time, and I felt that Americans were entering the closing off or a clamping down and looking to start wars, and it was such a different atmosphere politically, economically, you know, just the level of optimism in the economy felt so different. So I actually started by looking for the book because I wanted to read a book that addressed these issues. I've written about this in my book and in some articles recently. When I looked for books that it would address this topic of the intersection of parenting and education and globalization and how we prepare our children, I found topics like how to talk to your children about terrorism. Didn't want to talk to my kids about terrorism. I wanted them to be hopeful and optimistic and look at the world as their oyster, as something that they would be able to learn about and explore and enjoy and make friends and not fear it, not not have that learning be based on fear. So I really spent a lot of time reading the literature, looking around for what was out there, and the issues wouldn't go away. So I just took it on my own to compile resources. You know, it sort of took on a life of its own. And then in the meantime, I also had an opportunity in 2007 to take my three daughters and my husband supported us. He stayed home and worked, but we spent one school marking period in the Gambia, West Africa. It was an opportunity for a lot of things. I was going to, I could write, and I was invited to write a blog for my local paper, which is the Philadelphia Inquirer. And back then in 2007, there really weren't a lot of blogs out there like there are now. It was such a different landscape online. So this became a very popular blog, chronicling my life in Africa with my suburban kids. So that really was an interesting thing because it gave me a a voice, a lot of practice writing, and it showed that there was a very ready audience interested in these topics. And they knew that, you know, many of the people that would write to me knew they were never going to do anything like take their kids to Africa. But they would read it with their kids. They would learn from it. There were lessons they could 
in part, and it was a very wide readership that started to build attention and interest on the topic, and publishers were interested then in this concept um, to turning it into a book. So that's how it started to build momentum. And then so my focus was initially just with parents, but you learn very quickly on that the topic of education and educating the global citizen and issues of what they call global competency are very closely tied with the topics that I was looking at. So it's inevitable or unavoidable to apply the learning also to education, what's happening in our schools today. So how old were your children when they, you and they went to Gambia? When we arrived, they were 13, 11, and 3, and the oldest one turned 14 there, and then we returned, and the other two turned 12 and 4. So they were middle schoolers and preschoolers when we went. So I have a big gap between my oldest and youngest. It's 10 years difference. And now she's a freshman in college, the oldest one. So it's been a while. What was their reaction to this idea of going to Gambia, especially the older two? One of the reasons we went there is because, and I I do talk about this quite a bit in the book, we wanted to do something different. I knew that my kids were growing up in the same town and the same suburb their whole life, and I wanted to give them another experience. Things opened up that I could. And we have family that live there. I have a brother-in-law and sister-in-law who've raised their children there. My brother-in-law went there actually after college for, um, I think it was about a six-month internship as an engineer, as a civil engineer, building roads and infrastructure and buildings, and also being of service to the Baha'i community in the Gambia. So he went for six months, and now it's been over 30 years that they've actually lived there. So he never left, and they put down roots. They have, you know, really built a life that's really rich and interesting, and they both speak Wolof, for example, one of the local languages. So do their children, and they have a very interesting life there. We had always wanted to go visit and take the kids to visit their cousins, so it's quite expensive to go, and it takes a lot of preparation. And so it started off as we were looking into going for a two-week visit. And then the two-week visit, we realized it's just so expensive to justify two weeks was difficult. We thought, well, maybe we go for a month. And then my brother-in-law was like, well, if you're going to come for a month, why don't you come and stay longer and put the kids in school and really you know, immerse yourself in the life here? It was like, okay, why not? You know, it's just amazing when you put your mind to something, you think you're so busy and you think work and other things are impossible, but doors somehow opened that really allowed that to happen, and I knew that that may be the last chance because my oldest daughter was in eighth grade, so it was the year before she'd start high school and things get a lot more serious. And so we just sort of jumped at the chance. So we were very lucky because I didn't have to find an apartment and I didn't have to figure out just the basics of survival. We had that taken care of for us. And now there's a whole growing movement of families that take time off and go 
like a sabbatical from their hometown and live abroad. And there are all kinds of bloggers and all kinds of people on social media that do have these experimental lives that they design. And so there are many more examples of families that are getting up and taking their kids and living around the world and experiencing different ways of going to school and different ways of just having a home. So it's only four years ago, but it feels like kind of a lifetime away as far as the technology and just the awareness of doing something like this. It was pretty early on that we we were able to do it, and we all feel so lucky. So my, my big girls had a wonderful time, actually. They really adjusted well, and they all did. They They had very nice schools, and they made a lot of friends, and yeah, it was great. So they were into it. They were. They actually were. I mean, it helped that their cousins were there, and they love their cousins, and they get along really well, and so it was, it was very exciting. And I spent a lot of time talking about this in Growing Up Global, just how I prepped them for it. Part of the process of preparing them was not to overkill the preparation, that they would own this experience, and they were going to see there's a passage from the writings of Baha'u'llah. He says, part of justice is to see with your own eyes and not through the eyes of others and listen with your own ears and listen for yourself and find out for yourself. So, you know, I really think that's a gift that parents can give their kids is not to over-interpret or over-describe. They had the information they needed and then they each sort of had their own experience there but they were into it, and there were times that were difficult, and I I talk about that in the book, too. Like my daughter, who was 11 at the time, she would be very upset because there was a lot of injustice that she would see, and it was I think it was really her first time being conscious of such injustice in the world. I mean, she was really face-to-face with it, you know, as far as poverty and the status of the state of women's lives, and many children, and there was a lot of um, extreme that she saw there and became very conscious of. And to this day, she's very aware of a lot of social justice issues. And also, there were a lot of things that, at the time, I thought they would get more into, and I thought they would be more excited about or more interested in, And they didn't show or express a lot of excitement over things I thought they should express excitement over. And again, that's part of them owning their experience. Later, they express it in their own ways. So, you know, it's it's an interesting experience as a parent to watch your children grow into their own experiences and opinions. And so that was like magnifying lens because it was such a different experience to do something like that. But, yeah, they were into it. And one of the important lessons, you know, I've talked about this theme of friendship in my life and throughout the book, but I really didn't realize what a theme that was until we were in the Gambia. I was really struggling with thinking about how would I talk about the theme of global citizenship and how would people relate to that if that's not part of their normal vocabulary. And most Americans, that's not a topic that they think about or talk about. So I came across 
a quotation, and this is from also from the Baha'i Writings, be, it's very simple, be a friend to the whole human race. And that, I had this aha moment thinking about what it means to be a friend to the whole human race. That really, to me, is what a global citizen is. I was watching my girls have these, you know, the three-year-old made so many friends, and they were with people who were just so starkly different from anyone she knew back in the U.S. And seeing through the lens of friendship the experiences that she was having really made this idea of being a citizen of the world crystal clear. And so that aha moment helped me to figure out even the whole outline of growing up global revolves around this concept of friendship and being a friend to the whole human race. Now I speak to a lot of different audiences and schools, to parents' groups, to teachers, to kids, and even to corporate professionals. And I really, like, go through this idea of being a friend, equating it with being a citizen of the world, really on sort of a granular, fine level that we have discussions about what does it mean to be a good friend, what are the qualities of a friend, And then if you can imagine what those are, you extend that to what being a citizen of the world means. And then being a global citizen or a citizen of the world isn't such a difficult concept to pick up. It really becomes something that everybody relates to because friendship is such a universal quality. Whatever you believe, whatever, wherever you come from, however much education or money you have, friendship is valued. That's a great way to think about global citizenship, and that was really such a lesson that I picked up from my own watching my kids interact in that new environment. So, Homa, you you wrote this book, Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World. Mm-hmm. If you could describe what the... I, and I know you've made reference, quite a bit of reference to the book mm-hmm. through this interview, but if you could describe for folks who for the first time have heard this title what they would expect in this book that you wrote, Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World. Well, I think above all, the book has served as a toolkit for families and schools to some extent. It's a toolkit for how to raise a global citizen. So walking through the mindset and the qualities, a lot of it is it's ancient wisdom. It's not new stuff in a lot of ways, like how you practice the golden rule. You know, that's nothing new. But how we think about it and really apply it can be very modern and very much relevant to life today in our very, very connected world. So walking through the mindset and then walking through specific tools from language tools and tips for whether it's studying another language by being immersed in it or just picking up words here and there and just enjoying listening to languages or how to get your kids to eat new kinds of food, you know, even really practical things like how to raise a non-picky eater so that that experience of tasting different types of spices and 
fruits and vegetables and grains and all kinds of foods from around the world becomes part of your global adventure. I have a whole recommendation, a whole long list in a chapter of family-friendly foreign films. So what kind of movies can families with kids of different ages and different interests watch together that give a glimpse of life in lots and lots of different environments from Ireland to Mongolia? They're not just documentaries. Most of them are just feature-length films that are just you know, nice stories and fun to watch. I have chapters on celebrations, including things like birthday party themes and gift ideas. Uh, I have one chapter that's about how to talk about different religions with kids and how they can, part of their identity as a global citizen is just to have some literacy on what different practices and wisdom traditions or faiths teach. It's not, you know, like a summary of what the teachings are, but it's more like how you can gain appreciation with your children, because I think that's still a very uncomfortable topic for many people to talk about. So I have a lot in there on that topic, you know, whether it's experiencing or appreciating and learning about different belief systems through their arts and music and how you can start asking questions to friends that you may not have felt comfortable asking before. So it's even a lot of conversation prompts as part of the toolkit. And then the book culminates with a lot of service ideas. Because really, I think ultimately, when you feel like you're a friend to the whole human race and you feel so connected with the world, ultimately you want to be of service. You want to help out. You can't just watch the problems of the world and not be affected by it and not want to do something. So I have a lot of very practical suggestions on ways to think about what's happening in the world, prioritize your own interests, and then actual um, references to many, many organizations that families can get involved and start making a difference. Basically, summary, it's really a toolkit for raising a global citizen with lots of book suggestions and music and movies and the idea is that it's not homework. It should be something fun that your family embraces. You know, what do you love? I also have a chapter, a whole chapter on games, including how to use like your favorite sports that you're a spectator or a player, as well as just table games and playground games and all kinds of things. So it's hopefully it's very action-oriented. And it, it's often kind of a book that's a reference book, so you can go back to it again and again. It's not something you have to sit down and read all the way through. Would you like to read an excerpt from your book? Oh, sure. Let me think. I'm thinking there's a couple of them. These are early on in the book. Okay. Okay. So this is from the introduction. If I ever doubted that it is possible for insulated American kids to feel at home in the world, the reactions of my three children, who have lived in the same American suburb their entire lives, to their new environment, and particularly the relationships with their new African friends, gave me hope. One of the highlights from our experience was how well my youngest daughter, just three and a half at the time, adapted to her completely new environment. 
In her Gambian class, Sophia was the only light-skinned child, and she's the darkest one at her U.S. school. I talked with her about going to a new classroom with new friends and teachers, but I didn't mention anything about how different she would be from her peers, trying to preserve her as a blank slate. That first day, she sat still on my lap for 30 to 40 minutes, intently watching the activity in the classroom. Then when she became more comfortable, she walked over to the activity tables and explored. The next day and each day after, the children hugged her when she walked in and made, quote, birthday cakes with the bougainvillea and hibiscus flowers they picked for one another. I've never seen a more loving classroom environment anywhere. When we returned home, everyone who knew Sophia commented on how much she had changed. She was so comfortable going back to school, more ready to make friends, able to express more complex thoughts, and didn't display the same attachment anxiety to mommy. The eagerness and openness with which her African friends welcomed Sophia affected her profoundly. Among these sweet children, differences of race and nationality became only points of interest when fixing one another's different textured hair. Circles of friendship were malleable and open. We were quickly invited into her friends' homes where we ate foods that were novel to us and the girls danced and played games or dress-ups in ways that Sophia and I had never seen. By the end of our stay, she could switch in and out of speaking with a Gambian accent, became a fan of football, soccer, gained a new concept of physical beauty. She preferred dark to fair complexions by then and was undisturbed by going to a school without electricity. As she told her friends back at her American school, it's okay, we had lots of sunshine. The innocence of Sophia's age group demonstrates the impact that openness to new experiences can have. She had the fewest preconceived notions and thus took in the most. We already see the results. Her experience with these authentic friendships shaped her character in ways we are still uncovering. My other two daughters, ages 12 and 14 at the time, also consider the friends they made from their international school, natives of the Gambia, as well as Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Germany, and Lebanon, countries of which they had little or no prior knowledge as the highlight of their African experience. And then another section right below it says the other side of the story. The influence on my children of their direct exposure to such a different and loving cultural experience demonstrates how powerful feeling at home in the world can be for our children. That's the proactive reason to read this book. Simply put, positive experiences with the world's cultures enhance our lives. I believe there is another very important, though less idealistic, reason to read this book and put it to use. We live in a rapidly changing world where we know that globalization shapes our daily lives and is a major determinant to one's financial and career success. At the same time, our borders seem more closed than they have ever been. The fears of terrorism, job outsourcing, and immigrants, legal or otherwise, along with less cultural and racial diversity in most American schools, colors public policy and, and our exposure to the world. And then I talk about this open world, closed world dichotomy. became very clear to me when I spent that first anniversary of September 11th in Beijing, China, which I had discussed earlier. And then ultimately the purpose of the book is to take action and, and do something about 
all these forces that we see happening around us. Homa, if people want to find your book, mm-hmm. where would they go on the web to find your book? Okay. Well, come on my, my website is an easy place to learn, and that's growingupglobal.net. Definitely go to .net, growingupglobal.net. And also a fun way to stay informed is through the Facebook group. So you go to facebook.com backslash growingupglobal or on Twitter at growingupglobal. Um, and also it's very easy to find on amazon.com. It, it's also a Kindle book. It's been featured on Amazon and any independent bookstore as well. If they don't carry it on the shelf, it's very easy to access because um, you know this is a major publisher that carries it. It's hopefully not too hard to find, but growingupglobal.net is a good place to get started. Homa, at this point, now that you've written this book, what would you like to do next? <laughs> well, one thing, I've actually been really busy writing and working with some companies that are also very interested in global education, you know, writing a lot of different blogs and collaborating with different organizations. But I'm also actually, I'm thinking about a new book, and maybe if I put it out there, it forces me to uh, take more action on it. But I've been fascinated by just now that I'm in the, written a book that's in the parenting genre, how trendy so much parenting advice is that's out there. So everything from the tiger mother to the helicopter parent and the attachment parent and the playful parent and the free-range parent and the hyper-competitive and lots of tutoring to homeschooling and unschooling. And, you know, it's just parents are all over the place and the advice is all over the place. But there is some wisdom that has really stood the, the test of time. I wrote an article that's also in the Huffington Post and in Good Magazine, talk about it being beyond tiger mothers. So I look at this wisdom of the ages and how throughout history these wisdom traditions or these faith traditions have offered guidance that remains for millions of people the bedrock of their lives and it inspires so many people. And in that, families have really been inspired by those. So I'm thinking about a book that right now I call it Parent Like a Prophet, Learning from the Wisdom of the Ages and Sages to Inspire Effective Parenting. And the other thing that I think justifies or makes me think this is something worth pursuing is that people want to learn from other cultures and traditions. So It used to be that you just learned about your own church or faith. But today, the statistic is something like 37% of marriages are interfaith marriages, and very, very high numbers of people not only want to learn about what other people believe, but they're actually switching between churches or faith traditions in their own lives. So I think that People are really hungry to learn, so I I feel like this could be helpful as far as what is some of the wisdom and guidance throughout the different traditions and faiths that can inspire parents. 
So, Homa, I want to thank you so much for sharing your book with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Homa Tavangar, author of the book Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World. Her website is growingupglobal.net. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Lord make us as waves of the sea and as the flowers that grow united and agree through thy love through thy love oh through thy love through thy love oh, oh. bind together all the hearts and join in accord all souls oh lord make all of mankind as the stars that shine from the same sky and as the perfect fruits that are growing high through thy love through thy love oh through thy love, through thy love, oh, let us bind together all the hearts and join in a chord of souls.
about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, peace train sounding louder Tonight on the peace train This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.